gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and on this episode, I'm joined by my friend Natasha, who is one of our co-facilitators in the R&R Rounds simulation program. And we're sharing a conversation we had about an interesting PE case. Can you tell us about who you are and what you do? My name is Natasha Gumunyuk, and I am a third-year emergency resident in Alberta, Canada. And you have a case for us about pulmonary embolism, which I believe is one of your areas of interest. Yes, I don't quite know how I stumbled into PE, but I have grown to have quite a love for it over the last few years. And so given grand rounds on it and just it's always been something that I found quite interesting. The case I have for you today is one of a woman who came in probably with the worst looking color I've seen in a patient. She was that type of metallic steel gray that you see in the OR and was otherwise a fairly healthy mid-30s woman. And she was brought in in the middle of the night, incredibly dyspneic and just, again, this horrible looking color. So she comes right into her recess bay and her husband's with her and we get a little bit more of the story, which is fairly unremarkable. She doesn't take any medications. She's not pregnant. She had a fairly minor orthopedic surgery about four days ago. But other than that, nothing really remarkable in her past medical history. No issues with bleeding or clotting in the past. No big travel. Nothing else that we can really discern. So she comes into our recess day and, you know, as the nurses are getting an IV going and getting her onto her monitors, our first blood pressure is basically undiscernible. You know, that 60 or 50 over nothing And so I'm working with the staff and I go grab the ultrasound because that's become a pretty common part of my practice when figuring out why the heck is this patient so shocky. And we have a quick look first at her heart to try and see what's going on. And pretty quickly there, that gives us a good sense that that's probably generating a lot of the badness. There's lots of sort of specific signs that you can look at in ultrasound for figuring out RV dysfunction. But Even though I haven't done a ton of cardiac focused ultrasound training, even with my basic views, I'm able to see that there's quite a dilated RV and pretty poor cardiac function overall. So in the context of this woman who is a bit hypoxic, a bit hypotensive um, and otherwise healthy with this new RV dilation, suddenly PEs right at the top of our list. Could you tell us if there was anything else on your differential at this point or was it pretty much 100% PE in your mind. Mm-hmm. So pretty early on, you know, this is a woman coming in without a ton of past medical history. So I think we're all a bit primed to think of PE, but the other things that were kind of running through my mind as I go through my shock differential is this woman could absolutely have an ectopic or have some sort of uh, hypovolemic shock where she just didn't know she was pregnant and now has ruptured. I think about cardiogenic and especially in terms of a a sort of a myocarditis in someone who might have had maybe just viral symptoms and now is acutely unwell, especially in our day and age with everything going on. And I think about other obstructive causes as well. And then distributive is there again for her to become so acutely unwell in the absence of trauma or like any sort of anaphylactic trigger or infection. It's less likely, but I'm definitely still thinking about it. I recently learned to add anaphylaxis higher up on my list when I'm thinking of these patients who are coming in incredibly sick and in shock for unclear reasons. I think it's one of those ones that, especially if there's not a known trigger, can occur quite suddenly and can make patients look super sick. And it's got such a definitive way of treating it that I really try and think about it a bit sooner on rather than down at the bottom of my list. 
Yeah, okay. To summarize, the top of your list, the things you were actively worried about would mm -hmm. be number one, PE, number mm -hmm. two, ectopic slash hemorrhagic, hypovolemic mm -hmm. kind of picture, and number three, a hidden anaphylaxis that's trying to trick you. Yeah, I think okay. so. And so at this point, you have the patient presumably in some sort of resuscitation room on monitors. You've told us the initial vital signs. What were your next steps? So we grab the ultrasound and kind of go through our shock assessment. Again, patients can be in shock for more than one reason, which is scary. And I definitely don't want to assume that what's at the top of my list is actually what's going on. I want a bit of evidence to prove or to disprove that. So we get another set of vitals. This patient, I think, is as is reflex for a lot of people when they come in very hypotense as fluids had been started. And it wasn't until we had a look with the ultrasound that we sort of came together that we were likely looking at an obstructive picture. And so that's when we, we stopped our fluids and, and got the nurses to um, start drawing up norepi instead. And in your facility, which obviously is a higher level of care, how long mm -hmm. does it take from when you ask for norepinephrine for it to be connected and the infusion is starting? I imagine it's quite short. It's pretty fast. I think the nice thing about norepinephrine is we use it in pretty much all instances, again, outside of anaphylactic shock and then certain cardiac cases. But even again, norepi is always what we're starting first. So our nurses are super familiar with it. We do use push dose epi as well. But I think where I work, the nurses can probably get a norepi infusion started almost as quickly as I can draw a push dose. So depending on what hands we have and you know time of day and whatnot, Sometimes it's just quicker for us to stay at the bedside and for someone to get the infusion started. So in a rural facility where most of our listeners tend to work, if they are not going to get access to that norepi quite as quickly because it's not something mm -hmm. that's used as frequently and they want to make up their own push dose presser epi while that process is going on because they have free hands and their nursing staff is tied up, how would you instruct them to create that push dose epi and how would you then measure out the dose you want to give and administer that? Yeah, so it's push dose epi is a great thing to quite literally have in your pocket for these sorts of situations. So I would take a 10cc normal saline filled syringe and just waste a cc of that. So now you've got uh, nine mils left. And then in that, draw up a mill of the quote unquote cardiac epi or basically the epi that's on the crash cart. So um, that's a thousand micrograms in 10 mils. So with that being diluted down, now every mill you have in that syringe is 10 micrograms of epi. And so you can go ahead and give, you know, one to two mils every minute, uh, titrating to your blood pressure, especially if there's good response to it while you're waiting for free hands or for that norepinephrine infusion to be drawn up. I like that system because the dose that we want to give is 10 to 20 micrograms. And so your 10 mil syringe is now diluted to 10 micrograms per milliliter. So it's easy. You're just giving one or two milliliters at a time, which is 10 mm -hmm. or 20 micrograms at a time. And I think that's a great way to do it. Another common way to do it is to take a liter of whatever normal saline typically and just inject into that entire liter bag a ampule of epinephrine. And now it doesn't matter if you're using the concentrated version, the one milligram in one milliliter ampule, 
or if you put the entire 10 milliliter ampule of cardiac epi, as you're saying, into that liter. Either way, an entire milligram of epinephrine is going into the liter bag, which is giving you approximately one microgram per milliliter or close enough. And so mm -hmm. now you've got this giant reservoir and you can take your 10 mil syringe, draw it up, and it's going to be one mic per milliliter, in which case we'd be giving the entire syringe to give 10 mics maybe a little less elegant than what you're proposing, Natasha, but mm -hmm. a very quick and easy way to do that as well. As long as you're clear as to what your concentration is and what your target concentration is that you want the patient to receive. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way of doing it too. In this case, though, your norepi is very, very fast. So there's no need to do mm -hmm. that. The nursing staff was able to get that started, I presume. And mm -hmm. what happened from there? So we started pretty aggressively with the norepi. I think you can always titrate down. And the big fear in pulmonary embolism is this sort of RV cycle of death, where as you get increased RV afterload, and then you have sort of decreased systemic perfusion, and then decreased RV like coronary flow, basically, you just have an RV that's working harder and harder and getting less and less oxygen, and just spiraling down and pushing that forward. So we started our norepi at 0.2. And then I think she responded fairly well to that. We were finally able to get a blood pressure on her, which was satisfying. And at the same time, she's on a supplemental oxygen, not positive pressure. She's just on a non-rebreather. And at this point, we're trying to figure out, do we lyse this woman now? Or do we need more formal imaging? So the RV cycle of death, can you explain that again for me? Yeah, absolutely. So the big concern in PE is that there's kind of two things happening. There's the mechanical obstruction from this clot in the pulmonary vasculature. And then there's also like vasoconstriction of the pulmonary arteries. And that's because of platelets and inflammatory mediators and all these things. But basically the two bad things that are happening is that they're both creating increased RV afterload. So they're creating a lot more pressure for the right ventricle to try and pump into and this makes a few things happen. This means there's less output from the RV, which means that there's less preload for the left ventricle. And so then there's just overall less cardiac output. And then also in the RV itself, like as that fails, the volume builds up even more. And so there's that septal shift that we see on ultrasound. And then the LV works even worse. So again, now we're getting less cardiac output. And all these things leading to less cardiac output mean that there's less perfusion of the RV itself. And so the RV becomes ischemic. And now the RV is working even worse than it was before. And it's becoming more dilated. And that's leading the LV to work worse and worse. And it basically just keeps feeding onto itself and spiraling. And the more dilated the RV becomes, the more ischemic it becomes, the less it's able to contract. And therefore, the cycle just gets worse just and goes, worse. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a great podcast by Sarah Krager, and she describes the RV as the perfusion princess. And I love that because the RV is just so fickle and so high demand for its perfusion to work well. And so once this spiral starts, it just keeps going. I've heard her speak before. She's very good. Would you be able to send me a link to that podcast or yeah. that episode? And we'll put that Absolutely. in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything else we should pause and talk about right now, or should we get back to the case? I think we can get back to the case. So at this point, her vital signs have stabilized a little bit. She's still requiring vasopressor support. Her hypoxia has improved a little bit. 
we were able to send a gas, which showed that she was a bit acidemic. And so we gave her an amp of bicarb as well, just to help correct that. And the reason for that is it affects pulmonary vasoconstriction. So we're just trying to optimize as much flow as we can through the pulmonary arteries. We had another doc that we could chat with. And so the three of us put our heads together and we're trying to figure out, you know, this woman's still hypoxic. She's got impending respiratory failure, but we know that we really don't want to intubate someone with a cause of like obstructive shock or with PE. And so the question is, you know, do we, we have access to CTs in our institution overnight. So do we go to the CT scanner to prove that she's got a PE or do we have enough based on her story, her physical exam or ultrasound to tell us that, okay, we should just lice this woman here. And ultimately that's what we ended up deciding to do after we'd kind of gone through all our list of contraindications to lysis. Her surgery was quite minor and so not deemed to be a contraindication there. And Otherwise, there was no other reason for us not to. And it was deemed that it was probably too high risk for us to try and take her to the scanner, lie her flat and put her into this, you know, the circle of truth, but also the like the donut of death. So um, we liked her in our in our department. You mentioned she was acidemic and you gave her an amp of bicarb. What was her pH? If I recall correctly, right around 7.2. So pretty close. I think that's sort of the lower limit of where we would want it. If it had been any lower than that, we might have given her multiple amps. But at this point, she was quite sick. She had a borderline acidemia. And uh, we were really trying to throw the kitchen sink at her. Fair enough. And do you happen to remember what her CO2 level was in that blood gas? No, I don't. Sorry, Jonathan. But it wasn't sky high. It wasn't sky high, no. Okay. Because my understanding with bicarb is that when you put that in, mm-hmm. you are inducing a certain CO2 load quite quickly because mm-hmm. the bicarb dissociates in the blood very quickly. And so if you have someone and they're working hard to blow off that CO2, you can actually make their acidosis worse briefly before mm-hmm. the CO2 begins to suck up the extra hydrogen ions and then get blown off. Yeah, I think... Bicarb is a a very nebulous medication sometimes and can often have the exact opposite effect of what we want and yet is is commonly um, given in in acidemic situations. And I think it's probably like a whole discussion. For sure. In this case, we figured one amp wasn't going to save her, but also wasn't in that situation where it was going to do her a lot of harm either. Right. And when you gave it, did you give it as a push or did you give it over a few minutes uh, we gave it probably over the course of a minute. So for okay. those big amps with what it was, you know, yeah. uh, a fairly quick push, but not, not slammed yeah. in. Perfect. And then you talked about thrombolizing the patient. So tell us about mm-hmm. that. So we have uh, in our institution, we have our contraindications taped onto the box, basically, so that they're they're right there to think about. What changed from my practice after this patient was to think about it right up front. Uh, as soon as that thought came into our mind, you know, we, we had her husband there as collateral and were able to go through a lot of those screening questions. And then the other thing that came up for us in this patient was thinking about, you know, she's on vasopressors, thinking about needing a central line and at what point in the resuscitation you need to do that. And for us, it was more of a priority. She was sick enough that she needed the thrombolytics urgently. And so that was done first. And then a very careful central line had to be inserted later on. 
but we we gave her the thrombolytics and it was actually quite satisfying in that she seemed to feel better and that horrible color she had you started to resolve within just a couple of minutes and that she, her hypoxia improved somewhat she certainly wasn't her, her hypoxia was still ongoing but maybe now she was requiring a little bit less oxygen she was working a little bit less hard to breathe and her we were slowly able to wean down just a little bit of the norepi it doesn't take too much is my understanding to reduce that pulmonary vascular resistance and so by taking away just even like 10 or 20 percent of the clot burden that can be enough to kind of relieve the pressure on the rv and do a lot of help very quickly for the patient okay i love this anecdotal report because this is why we give thrombolytics we hope that within a matter of minutes we are seeing an improvement and i think like many applications in medicine what we're hoping to do is take an obstruction and just push it more distal into mm -hmm. smaller vessels so often if you have a foreign body in the respiratory tree for example if you can't get it out you just push it into one of the smaller airways and therefore you're opening up some more of the alveoli in this case we're taking a clot and if we have a large one and we break it in two and it goes and it wedges further upstream it means there's a whole bunch of more proximal blood vessels that are now opened up and even though it doesn't eliminate the obstruction 100 percent it is increasing the percentage of the organ that is now able to perfuse so absolutely i think that's the real benefit and hope of what thrombolysis is going to do mm -hmm. in the end where did she end up how did she do so in the end, we gave a call to our ICU colleagues who took her for her ongoing infusion of the thrombolytic and to keep her in ICU to watch her for any bleeding or sequelae from that over the next 24 hours. She stayed in our department until she was a little bit more stable. And then she actually got a CTPA before going to ICU, which did confirm that she had a fairly large bilateral clot burden. Good. Let's talk about rural application of what we're learning from this case. So yeah. I think your discussion about, do you give the thrombolytic first? Do you get a central line? Because she's probably going to need a central line. But mm -hmm. once you give the fibrinolytic, now she's at higher risk of complications of that. I love that discussion. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to remember that in rural centers, often it's not even an option to start a central line but mm -hmm. it's not something that we do frequently. And so you can always use an IO catheter for up to 24 hours, I believe, as your central line in a pinch. And mm -hmm. so if this case had happened in Fort St. Nowhere, I think getting that IO in would have been probably your best bet because it's very quick. And now you've got that central access and you don't need to delay your thrombolysis and life is good. Yeah, so, absolutely. And then if you're waiting long times for transport, or something from that point of view, then you're not worried about it. So I think an IO is an awesome option there. Totally. And on that topic of waiting for transport, most rural centers will not have a CT scanner available. And so that mm -hmm. decision of do we act aggressively and thrombolize now based on our hunches and what we've gleaned, or do we wait for the definitive CT? That balance is much more skewed in mm -hmm. a rural setting because it might be four hours before you can get them to the the donut of death, as you say, and in which case it probably is the donut of death. So yeah. yeah, I love the fact that you guys just went ahead and treated the patient based on enough certainty to justify the risks of the thrombolysis. Mm -hmm. I think we often worry about thrombolysis as being this really scary medication that can cause harm and it can, but I don't 
know if the risks are quite as high as we imagine it to be, especially when you have someone in extremis as this patient was, who is not going to survive for a particularly long time without the treatment. Absolutely. And I would never want my hand to be pushed for this patient to arrest and then be deciding to give my thrombolytic. And we were certainly concerned that that's where she was headed. And so we weren't going to wait for that to happen, to have no choice but to give it. We decided that earlier was in the best interest of the patient, despite the concerns around the risks. For sure. I 100% agree with you. Once that patient arrests, their survival chances go from, and I'm just pulling numbers here, but they go from, you know, 99% down to like, I don't know, 1%. I don't know. It's it's dramatic, right? Yeah. Um, and so I agree. If you are worried this patient could arrest in the next couple of minutes and you've got the fibrinolytic and you think that the fibrinolytic is probably the answer, it's probably mm-hmm. time to do that. Mm-hmm. Great case. Anything else you want to add about this? The only other thing that I'll just touch on again is, is really thinking about fluids in these patients and being really gentle. And it's so often our our impression that these patients who come in shocky that a leader won't hurt them. And in these obstructive patients or in these PE patients, it can actually be quite, quite damaging. So often, you know, our EMS colleagues will start IV fluids in the patient's absolute best interest. But once we have more information, ideally that's coming from our ultrasound, then just knowing that leaving those running can actually do more harm than good. I really appreciate you bringing that up because in episode 23 about shock, I was a little bit anti-fluids and really pushing for early vasopressors. And I think this just brings up the opportunity to discuss that again, because Mm -hmm. a little bit of fluids early on, before you know what's going on, probably not the end of the world, but delaying vasopressors or slamming in two liters of normal saline based on the religion of resuscitation may not be in the patient's best interest. So I love the fact that you guys automatically had the fluids running, whether that was your EMS as it was or the nursing staff, but very quickly you realize, no, this is probably something different and you stop it and then switch and start the vasopressors, either push dose or in your case, the norepinephrine. Yeah, absolutely. Unless it's not in line with the patient's goals of care or their you know, their expressed wishes. And I think early vasopressors, you can always turn them off, but they'll generally buy you time and are, are often actually lower risk than fluids in a lot of cases, or certainly more helpful. For sure. I totally agree with that. And I love the fact that you started at 0.2, which I assume is mics per kilo per minute. Yeah. It's a little bit confusing because norepi can be dosed in mics per kilo per minute. Sometimes it's dosed in mics per minute, which obviously is a much higher number. So mm-hmm. don't confuse those two units. But 0.2 is still a relatively low conservative dose, mm-hmm. but it's not starting at some ridiculous homeopathic dose of say 0.01 yeah. mics per kilo per minute, and then taking 10 or 20 minutes to titrate yourself up into that therapeutic range of 0.1 or 0.2, which it sounds like is more your and my starting dose for norepi. Yeah. Perfect. I appreciate you taking the time. It's fun to talk to somebody in a very different sphere, both where you're at in your education and your career, but also how you practice, because sometimes you have different views of how to do things. And it's interesting to consider that because, you know, I can definitely learn things from that as can the R&R audience. So yeah, oh, no, absolutely. I, I was, it was really fun to do this and I'd be happy to do it again. Awesome.